Empowering Independence podcast is a conversation about the RIA space, hosted by Austin Philbin, with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high-energy, insightful creation, this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. We'll ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, Chief Administrative Officer at Dynasty Financial Partners. Today I'm joined by Dave LaBlocca, one of the co-founders of Intellectus Partners and CEO. Dave began the company and the philosophy around Intellectus, Intellect Plus Us, taking the combined experience of his clients and the specialties that he brings to the table in entrepreneurs. Dave, thanks for uh, joining me this afternoon. I really appreciate it. It was good to get caught up with you earlier in the week. How you doing? I'm doing great, Austin. I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, this is... Um, I've been waiting a while. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you about a whole bunch of different topics today. Um, I think an easy, easy place to start. You are the founder or co-founder of Intellectus Partners in San Francisco. Yep. And um, you know why? Why did you? Why did you decide to to leave Deutsche Bank and start Intellectus? Boy, that's a long story, but uh, <laughs> and we're going back five years now. Yeah. By the way. I, I'd say this is almost exactly our five-year anniversary as we're recording this. Wow. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting road trip, that's for sure. Well, let's think about it. We decided to launch the firm, frankly, because we just didn't think that the big banks were serving the entrepreneur set very well. Um, our perspective was that the banks were filled with conflicts of interest. They were not really focused on serving clients that we're building. Um, as you well know, the banks were designed and still are designed for servicing clients that um, had already accomplished a ton and had an enormous amount of capital. And those were the clients that they wanted to focus on, which is great in the wealth management world, because of course, wealth management, you need the capital to service the client. So you have the proper client. But our view was that in addition to that, especially where we live and where we came from in Silicon Valley, um, so much more of the growth of the business was going to be from growth clients. And those were the clients that maybe hadn't accomplished everything that they wanted to yet. So we took this perspective that we were more interested in clients that were going to become what they expected to be rather than already had achieved what they wanted to achieve. And that was a big differentiating factor for us. And so the banks weren't as interested in that. So that was one thing. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples, actually. Yeah. We had a client of ours who is now a very well-known uh, executive in the entertainment world who was a serial entrepreneur. He came to me a few years before we left, and he said, and his net worth was not that significant. It was literally only a few million dollars. And he came to me and he said, hey, I've got this great opportunity to invest in an NFL team, um, but I'm going to need to borrow the money to do it. And the company that he was building, I knew was a very fast-growing, exciting company. Yeah. But uh, not a lot of people outside of us really appreciated how fast-growing and how how big a potential it was. So we kind of broke our backs to try to help this guy, and this was at Deutsche Bank, to try to help this guy get secure some financing so that he could actually invest in the NFL team as a minority owner. Um, after several months of working on it, um, we pretty much got nowhere. The firm said, nah, there's not enough capital there. We don't really know who this guy is anyway, so we can't do this. He turned around on his own, as entrepreneurs do, and he, and he got it done. And at that point, it was only, I think, a $10 million loan. A year later, he came back to me, as, and his business continued to scale pretty fast, but it was still relatively unknown. And he said, hey, I just got this great deal to buy this property in L.A. I need $20 million. Can you help me borrow the $20 million? I'll post all my collateral, sign the personal guarantees. Went through the same scenario uh, with the bank. The bank 
we went through the investment banking team that started to recognize his possibility of what he could be as a as an entrepreneur. Same answer though was no, sorry, there's just not enough there. We can't do it. He did the same thing. He went somewhere else. He got the loan done. Um, now the guy's worth a billion dollars, <laughs> right? Right. Well, now now he's very attractive to the banks at a billion dollars. Exactly. And now all the banks want to have been throwing money at him for a couple of years. Um, he's been incredibly successful. He's very high profile. And it really struck us that the banks just aren't interested in a risk, as we all know, but they're really not interested in helping entrepreneurs. They don't understand the life cycle of the entrepreneur. They don't understand um, how to identify emerging entrepreneurs. It's just not what they're interested in. It's not the business model. Right. So that was a real highlight for us as to, you know, maybe we're in the wrong environment for what we're trying to achieve. I think the other thing that, that you and I have talked about, because <clears throat> for those of you that are listening that don't know this, um, you know, I moved out to, to San Francisco five or so years ago when Dave and Jay started the business, uh, had, had stayed in uh, the office together. Actually, when you first launched the business, I, I sat on your trading desk at the time uh, for probably the first three or four months. But we talked a lot about that whole philosophy around the life cycle of an entrepreneur and how um, for the banks, it's not the ideal client because the capital that they have or the dry powder that they have is often somewhat fluid and going to be reinvested into the next business opportunity potentially and being able to understand the difference between traditional quote unquote wealth management assets that are stable, that are meant to uh, appreciate and then the capital of an entrepreneur and that that difference between the two. So when you think about the types of clients that you work with and the different services that you provide them, you don't see yourself, or at least you've explained not seeing yourself as quote unquote wealth management, but around wealth creation and wealth preservation in whatever shape or form that takes. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, in fact, I don't actually like to use the phrase wealth management when I talk about the business. And it's not because what we do isn't wealth management. If you obviously looked at it from the outside, you would identify it as that. But it, it comes with a connotation. And the connotation, unfortunately, is the legacy of the big banks, the conflicts of interests, um, you know, the, the dynamic that we're descri describing with these banks just wasn't, isn't healthy for clients, in my opinion. So we wanted to kind of shift the, the narrative a little bit. And that's where we started to talk about it, um, wealth creation and preservation and also wealth advisory. Um, and obviously, creation and preservation is what it is, right? It's, we actually view a significant part of what we do as helping the clients create the wealth. Um, and so there's two sides. It's create it and then it's preserve it, right? Um, the other way to think about it is wealth advisory as our narrative has evolved a little bit is wealth advisory. You think of it as a combination of wealth management plus strategic advisory. Right. So we have resources internally, as you know, where um, because we think we believe that for, you know, a change maker, for an entrepreneur, you cannot separate the entrepreneur from his business. It's one and the same. If you were to ask that entrepreneur where his wealth is going to come from, they would never tell you that my wealth is my future wealth is going to come from my portfolio. Yeah. They would always tell you that my future wealth is going to come from the businesses I'm building, the deals that I'm doing, what I'm spending my lifetime doing on a daily basis, my craft. And in the wealth management industry, there's never been an initiative or an effort to frankly drive value on that, on that side of the balance sheet. And that doesn't make any sense to me because if what we're doing is advising on wealth and the and the largest portion of wealth is going to be created out of the business side, why shouldn't wealth management or whatever it is that we do, wealth advisory, as we call it, why shouldn't we have an expertise in assisting building the wealth on the business side as well? Right. And so what we've done as a firm is we've oriented the organization to do just that. So we have uh, expertise internally on wealth planning, trust estate planning. Um, in fact, uh, Jeff Sicasio, who leads that effort for us, joined us from PwC, where he was a lead tax partner there. Uh, he ran uh, wealth planning at both Deutsche Bank and Citigroup, and he was at my CFO. Uh, super fortunate to have him in the firm. And so I can put 
Jeff in front of the most, most wealthy, most sophisticated client with the most complex situation, and we can figure out the appropriate tax structure and strategy for that client, either on what you would consider the personal side or frankly, the business side too. Right. And by integrating the two, you're reducing risks dramatically and you're obviously in increasing the odds of them achieving the wealth that they want to achieve. Um, additionally, we've got uh, expertise on the corporate advisory side. And that's Tim Ng. Tim's a 25-year senior investment banker. He worked at all the big shops. He worked for Frank Quattrone for a number of years when Frank was building Silicon Valley. Uh, Tim's a little bit of a renaissance man uh, in that he was a VC. He, was, he worked in the private equity world. He's founded a, a couple of companies. He sat on public boards. And he's literally sold and or taken public hundreds of companies. So now on the other side, when a client has a question about strategy with their business, um, you know, they don't just call their buddy or their corporate counsel, who isn't generally the right person to always talk to with these things if it's a personal question related to the business, but he can come, they can come to us. And now Tim can sit in and go as deep as, we, as the client may need to go on strategy. It could be, how do I raise capital? When do I raise capital? Uh, it could be somebody's approached me to acquire my business. Do I hire a banker? How do I hire a banker? How do I negotiate with a banker? How do I do all those things? And and Tim has literally taken that role on for clients and done it exceptionally effectively. So then what you end up with, uh, among other you know planning resources and the traditional financial advisory and the portfolio uh, services that we've got, you have a fully integrated suite of services where... Uh, from start to finish, everything that impacts that client's wealth, we can uh, give them the strategic advice. And to the extent that we need additional advice, we go to our network of partners, lawyers, accountants, and so forth, and then we'll bring them in. But we'll pretty much have planned out the strategy from that point. Right. You know, it's interesting as, as you were, you know, talking through the firm and your ability to serve entrepreneurs, a closely related theme that it gets some attention from time to time, but it really doesn't, it hasn't had a meaningful change. It's just around the way in which, as an industry, we charge clients. And so, I mean, typically the way in which end clients are being charged is a an asset-based uh, fee based on the, the advisory assets that they have under your purview under management, which if you just think about what you were going, what you're talking through from an entrepreneur, from, for someone that's starting a business that wants advice related to starting that business, but doesn't necessarily have assets that they can give to a manager to manage for a fee, it's a conundrum, right? Because those people need advice. Yeah. And if you're able, to your point, to link advice around the business with the individual and their own personal wealth and be able to do that effectively that should be very attractive for any institution. But the, I think there's somewhat of a reluctance to move outside of the box and think about different fee structures for clients. And then you make it even more difficult because as you know, and we've talked about this a lot, if somehow you construe a fee and it's associated with the success of a transaction, now all of a sudden that's become a commissionable or a brokerage type transaction, right. which gets you into all sorts of different types of hot water. So right. the industry as a whole, to your point, in addition to it not fitting the model from a wealth management big bank perspective, it also is more challenging around how you create a, a relationship and get paid for that. Yeah. I'd be interested in the way in which you've thought about it as you provided or started to provide some of these services to your clients at Intellectus, and then how open have individuals, the end clients, been to paying a fee for advice other than what they've traditionally been used to, which is a fee based on assets under management? Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, and it's an important one, in fact. Um, you know, we're in a heavily regulated industry, and you know, our philosophy as an organization is always do the right thing. And so the regulations are there to make sure you're doing the right thing. So we're pretty militant about making sure that, that we are abiding by those things. Now, we're not um, a broker dealer. When we launched, um, we were under, as you know, uh, we were under a broker dealer setup because we didn't know any better. We thought that um, that's what we did before. That's what we should do now. Um, but after several months, we decided that we didn't need that anymore. 
the the way that this is um, that we approach this aspect of the business is that if you create value, there is business to be done. Right now, um, so we focus on creating value for our clients throughout you know this entire life cycle. We actually have a situation uh, recently where a client of ours who is a let's just call it a traditional wealth advisory client or wealth management client um, was approached by a third party that wanted to acquire their business. And um, because they understand all of the capabilities that we have, they came to us and said, hey, you know, we weren't necessarily looking to sell, but somebody approached us. They're coming on pretty aggressively. What do I do? How do I handle this? Who do I talk to? Can you guys help me? Um, For a couple of months now, we've been engaged with a client advising them on this entire process. Um, giving them analytics, what the business could be worth, helping them understand the dynamics of what a transaction looks like. We're not marketing the business. We're not trying to find other bidders for the business. We're not doing anything like that that would fall under a broker-dealer regime. What we're doing is we're advising the client on an ongoing basis and giving them incredible advice that, to this point, has, in fact, increased the – nothing is closed yet, but it has increased the potential value of the transaction – um, educated the client, gotten the client to the point where they feel comfortable with the dynamic and the situation so that they can make uh, a very good and educated decision. And we're going to help them through this process. And as part of this, we are compensated for it additionally as a, as a separate advisory fee. Right. And the client's extremely excited about the situation because the, the sheer amount of value that we've added. Um, we're not marketing a business. We're not going out and acting as an M&A advisor in, in a transaction. We're not getting paid a transaction fee. But right. what we're doing is providing ongoing advice to this client in a new area that's strategically relevant to them. And here's the key point for all of us in this industry that will create more value or more wealth for the client, which of course, eventually is good for the business overall. Right. So it's a really symbiotic relationship that way. It's hard. It's a lot of work. And you certainly need a lot of expertise to be able to do this. It's taken us, as I said, this is our five-year anniversary. Um, it's taken us a while to get to the point where we've got this this kind of process nailed, um, but we've been working on it the whole time. Um, and now we've got a system that works really well. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's super important for the people that are listening to think about that. That concept around you can get paid for within reason, I know you can't, everything has to have a caveat associated with it, but you can get paid within reason for anything that the end client, the business owner, the athlete, the name it client segment finds value in. And I think that a lot of people, again, from the, the philosophy of creativity or just thinking that it's not possible continue to to remain stuck on i'm going to charge you 75 basis points for your assets under management and for that you're going to receive some basic financial planning and you know some investment management it's that's fine i'm not suggesting that if you do that there's anything wrong or that um your clients aren't getting value i am suggesting though in a model like yours where you have a particular set of expertise and individuals that are specialists that can provide that expertise that you should be charging above and beyond what your quote unquote typical wealth management fees are. Yeah. And if you're able to, to provide that value to those individuals, they'll pay for it. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so, you know, a, an effort for us within this organization, and in fact, it goes into the name of, of the organization in Electus, right? Right. Which relates to consciousness, you know, if you look at the Latin uh, definition, it relates to uh, thinking about things effectively to paraphrase outside the box, right? Right. But the other etymology of the name is that it's if you break it apart as intellect plus us, that's how we think about it. It's almost the intellect of our clients plus us, meaning we're building a network of sophisticated, accomplished, very, very smart and capable clients. And so when a client comes into the firm, um, they're going to come in with a particular area of expertise and area of focus. And we actually, we kind of use this phrase that, you know, well, when the client comes in, we know that we're going to ask them for a favor someday. And we tell them that at at the outset, So they may have a particular area of expertise that could be relevant to another client. 
And over time, we will we'll tell them that over time, we will come to them and say, hey, we've got a client that needs your area of expertise. We go to lunch with them and we talk to them about your experience in, in your area of expertise because we think it would be incredibly valuable to that client. And every time they do it and they do that because, A, they know that's part of what Intellectus is all about. It's about creating this network of higher value individuals that can create higher value for the network as a whole. Um, but it doesn't, it, it's not incumbent upon us to be the smartest guys in the room, right? Our clients are the smartest guys in the room. And we know that that's why they're so successful. But if we can create right. synergies among them, it creates incredible value within the organization. And so it, it certainly creates a feedback loop, um, that, uh, that's very powerful and, and that we leverage quite a bit. Yeah. And, and that point that you made, um, is something that I referenced, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I posted something on LinkedIn and it was the, the thought that we as a company have always learned the most from operators, people that run the RAs like you, like, and that philosophy that you extend with your own clients is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges in, I guess in our industry is to think that you know, you know, the answer to every question. And when I mean you, I mean, the general sense of you. Yeah. And the reality is, if you if you step back, and you have just a little bit of humility, and openness to to have a relationship with your clients, that's truly a partnership, and to admit that there may be things, or there definitely are things that they're going to know more about in a very short period of time. But through partnership, and relationships, you can expand that knowledge and make the overall experience for each other better, yeah. that it ends up in, in a much better relationship. And so I always say that the, the lessons that I've learned have come from the position of being an operator. Yeah. And when I try to position what we do as a company really well, and I ask who are they engaged with and who are they getting advice with, I always question the person that you're talking to, are, do they have a clear line of sight across all of the different things that go into running an RIA? Mm-hmm. And if you're a consultant or if you just represent one piece of technology, I'm not suggesting that you don't understand either the things that would be important theoretically or philosophically for an RIA, or you don't understand a piece of technology that's going to be incredibly helpful to those people, whether it's reporting or trading, et cetera. However, I then asked the question, like, how many of these these companies are you working with on a, on a day-to-day basis and how in the weeds are you? Because as, as I guess, as, as challenging as it can be in trying to solve the operational along with the, the strategic elements of a company, if you don't have the right foundation, if things aren't working correctly, you're not going to have a business or you're not going to have a relationship with a client that that has wah to it, that has any type of harmony to it. They're, they're always going to be asking, fix this first, and then we can talk about strategy. And so I, I think being able to blend the operational knowledge, having humility to learn from your end clients, and then being able to bring all of that together, for me, has been really important along this, this journey of startup into, I, I think, where we are currently as a company. It seems like a lot of that same type of thinking has, has served you well as you continue to build out Intellectus. Yeah. I mean, Dynasty was obviously critical to us and um, in becoming what we've become. And, and the, the network that Dynasty has created is incredibly valuable. And there's a ton of, of commonalities and in, in, in philosophy there. Um, there's no doubt about it. And it, and it absolutely adds an enormous amount of value. <clears throat> there's another aspect of it I think is um, that we've, found very helpful, which is by having the the certain types of clients that we have, you know, and as you know, right, when you're launching an RIA, when you're running an RIA, you're running a business, right? This is a business. And coming out of the wealth management industry, very few people out of the banks, for example, had ever run, have ever run businesses before. So you need a lot of help in trying to figure out how to run a business. And it's ongoing. You know, of course, there's a drinking from a fire hose kind of an effect in the beginning. But the ongoing stuff, and as you scale, um, there's always questions and and issues that come up that you have to figure out how to resolve. For me, being able to go to clients and being able to talk to clients about um, their experiences when they scaled their businesses and when they, you know, 
had a certain situation that was somewhat akin to what we may be going through, how they dealt with those issues. Um, it's like having this massive advisory board of incredibly accomplished people. That's really powerful. And it, it yeah. helps you uh, get much better at the operational side. It helps you get much better at, at running the business and scaling the business. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's one of the huge benefits of actually running an RIA, in my opinion. Yeah. And you just stated something that's really important, I think, for people uh, to understand. And maybe, you know, the, the people that are listening already understand this, but I think it's worth repeating. One, it's, this is a process. Mm-hmm. When you run your own business, it's a never-ending process, hopefully, to improve. And whether it's, you know, Kaizen, like small changes add up to massive incremental value or change to the company, or it's the concept that's, you know, prevalent in the area that, that you run the company in Silicon Valley around iteration. So when you look at your company, and I've been a part of it, I've seen you know, different things that you've tried, bring different people in, you are constantly iterating. You're mm-hmm. constantly thinking about the different ways in which the company uh, can morph and change different people to bring in to try different things. How important to you do you think iteration is to a business and then particularly to an RIA? Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. And I think it's Jeff Bezos that uses this phrase uh, that's something to the effect of you can't make decisions with full knowledge. You have to make your decisions with 80% of the knowledge that you want, right? Or information that you want. And so, you know, you can you can be frozen in indecision if you were to kind of step back and look at the sheer quantity and scale of decisions that you need to make on a daily, weekly, monthly, or annual basis by running a business or an RIA, because it's pretty daunting. But by creating a process of iteration, right, of making your decisions relatively quickly, maybe on the business side, without maybe 100% of the information that you need, but you've got, you know, three quarters of the information that you need to make a qualified decision, you go and, and, and you evaluate as you go. And if it's not working out the way you expected it to, you cut it and you move on, you go to the next thing. And that's what we've done. Jay and I have been really good at that. You know, we have an incredible level of communication because frankly, we've been working together for 20 years now. Um, it's almost, uh, it's one of these, um, you know, we don't even have to have full, uh, full sentences or full conversations to understand what we're thinking and what route we want to go. And if we pull the plug on something, we pull the plug really quickly if if we don't think it's the right decision. And so uh, that's allowed us to, um, frankly, get to the point where right now we've got, um, we're in the best position, thankfully, that I would have ever expected us to be in as an organization. Um, the, the team that we have overall, there's about 11 of us right now, is incredible. And everybody does, does their job really well. They have a passion for what they're working on. They have a passion for helping these clients. The, the, the sheer skill level that we have within the organization, frankly, is mind-boggling to me. Right. And for such a relatively small organization, we're still you know just under a billion dollars, uh, it's It's incredibly gratifying, but it gives me a ton of confidence, uh, especially when I look at the results, that we're on the right track. But it's only happened because, A, our motto of just always doing the right thing and hiring people that, and keeping people, I should say, that have that same philosophy, um, and just making sure that we've got the right team together. So the iterative process is what's gotten us here. And it's been really cool to watch because those tenants that you just laid out You've li- you lived them. Like you're not just saying that. Like I've I've watched these things happen to your business, and I've watched you take risks with different people or different strategies. And then when it doesn't work out, you don't cry about it. You just move on. And that mentality, um, similar to what you're talking about, running a business is very different than being a financial advisor within the confines of you know a traditional bank or financial institution. There's not a lot of ability either to think outside of the box or to, uh, you know, try different things. You get, you know, they try to focus in on doing a a very specific set of tasks and trying to, that's that's why I have a challenge a lot of times when we talk about practice management. I was like, well, what what exactly are we going to talk about from a practice management standpoint that somebody managing a billion dollars hasn't already heard before. You're just wrapping it in a different package. I want something 
that's unique and and truly different or i want like a a process that you can show me is replicable in all sorts of different geographies with all sorts of different skill sets because yeah. to me the the whole the whole value that we can provide uh, to our clients is just the ability to 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 help them to think about different ways of doing business and to fully grasp the the freedom that you now have yeah. which is the ability to do different things is the ability to iterate but you have to have an open mind. And if you have an open mind and you think, well, I'm going to try a new strategy. I'm going to hire a new person. I'm going to try to price things differently. If it doesn't work out, you know, the risk is that it doesn't work out. Maybe you lose, you know, some, you lose a client or two, maybe you lose some revenue. But if you're, if you're at least thinking about how to grow the business, how to scale it, you're going to have a better shot of actually doing it. I know it sounds obvious but it's not not many people are doing the obvious well so there's there's another aspect of that as well which which is incredibly powerful in the ra world right because we're running a business right and we've gone through all of these good things bad things pluses minuses you know decisions that worked and didn't work um it literally has helped us to be better pure financial advisors as well in the purest of, of it of the sense as well what I mean by that is if I'm going to go evaluate another money manager, oh my God, my expertise and me, I mean, as an organization, our expertise now versus what we had when we were at uh, the previous banks, it's probably a hundredfold what we, the capability, what we had before. The reason is we understand the nuance, like we're, because we're running money, like we understand what you what we should be doing and what what you're not supposed to be doing and what are the things to look for what are the nuances what are the subtleties right you know um when you're going through either in the investment diligence or the odd on on a fund like we can spot this stuff relatively quickly now whereas in the past it was it was nowhere nowhere near what we could do now or you're investing in an in a portfolio in, in individual companies and you're going to do analytics and analysis on, on, on a particular company. Having run a company, you have an entirely different appreciation. <laughs> right. Right. You can't even, literally can't even compare it. So it's really remarkable what the practical influence of running a business has on being a better financial advisor. Um, it's, it's made us far, far better than we were before. Yeah. So I'm going to change uh, gears a little bit. You. Um... You came to the West Coast from uh, the Philly area, um, East Coast, and you've, you've kind of grown up during the golden years of technology in Silicon Valley. So what, what are some of the lessons that you've learned uh, since being out in, in this area from either your clients or just other people gen generally? What, what have you learned in being in Silicon Valley during the golden years? I don't think you have enough time for all the work. <laughs> And by the way, again, that's also, I think I'll highlight for us is that experience really does matter. Yeah. I mean, it was proven out in March, right? Having, you know, managed a business and clients and portfolios through what we've just gone through and what we're still going through. Um, the experience had a huge impact, right? I mean, it's, you know, I've been in this business a while now. I joke with my friends now and colleagues that, you know, I'm almost one of the old guys now in the industry. And so, yeah, but you're you're a cool old guy. You're not an old guy. Yeah, you know, we managed through 09. We did that very well. You know, I I went through the 2000 to 2002 cycle, which really was a very Silicon Valley focused down cycle. You know, 1998 was bad. Like we've been through some really really bad times and managed through them all really well. And I'll tell you that the first thing you know to your question, what what are the lessons? Um, this one isn't specific to the Valley necessarily, but it partly is, but cycles repeat. Right. Okay. Yeah. And you know, we all have to remember that in the business is that business cycle exists. It hasn't died. Uh, they change and they will always fool you. The market will always do uh, what it can to fool the most amount of people. And so these cycles repeating is, is probably the number one lesson. And you know, the, uh, corollary to that, I think, is that while cycles repeat, behaviors don't change. 
you see the same behaviors every single time. And as you know, you know, we're really big proponents of behavioral economics. It, it's, it's woven through everything that we do. Uh, it's, it's proven to matter in a big way. And no matter how smart a client or, a, frankly, an advisor is, um, or how many tools and resources you've got, you still are human and you still have emotions. And handling emotions is a really, really hard thing to do. Um, and so uh, when you go through the, the bad periods and the good periods, right? I mean, again, we're going through it now where we've gone through, you know, um, the the depths of March 23rd to the peaks of what we're seeing now and this incredible rebound that markets have had. And on both sides of it, you see emotions from clients. And a big part of our job is to make sure that we can manage clients through the emotional side of it. Um, and so experience matters. That's another big lesson for us, as I said. Um, the, uh, you know, an interesting aspect of it that I think is a little bit more Silicon Valley focused too, though, is that data is incredibly critical. Um, and so much of it is available right now. Right. Learning how to utilize data appropriately um, is, is getting more and more important than it used to be, partly because it's, it's accessible. And, um, you know, in our business, part, a big part of what we need to do is to figure out how to manage the data, how to analyze the data, how to, and it, once you have access to that. So that's a, I think that's a huge lesson of having been in Silicon Valley is the, the successful companies here. And again, you're seeing it in the markets now are, uh, capital light businesses that are intellectual right. property heavy businesses that define the RIA world, right? Yeah. You know, if we can take that capital light business model and supplement it with the expertise around utilizing data to the benefit of the portfolios and the uh, advice that we provide, all of a sudden, you know, I would argue, why are we, why are we different than any of these other high multiple SaaS technology companies? Right. Yeah. It's the commonalities there. And I think that's where this business is going effectively. It's a really good point. One that I want to I want to stick with uh, the, the thought about data. And so I was in a prospect conversation earlier this week and the the prospects were, you know, somewhat anti social uh, marketing and, and utilizing different sources like LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. And I know that you all do a really good job of um, of creating content for those different sites and their their thought behind it was that you know there there wasn't enough content for them to put out they didn't think that they could put out anything that wasn't truly representative of the brand et cetera et cetera et cetera so i asked them a simple question i was like well how do you know that you're having success or not having success with what you're posting and they didn't they couldn't have an they didn't have an answer for that right what they thought was well we need to write really uh, thought-provoking, perfectly written white papers that we post to our client and prospective client base. And that's our strategy. And it made me think, one of my favorite books that I've read in a long time is a book called Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Really Tell Us About Who We Are. It's by this guy named Seth Stevens Devotovitz. Sorry, messed up his last name. But anyhow, the focus of the book is that everybody lies. We all lie, no matter what, because we want to represent ourselves, I shouldn't say we all, but most of us at some point in life want to represent ourselves in a certain way that is not actually our true self. Like I lived in Japan and they have this concept of like your public and, and private face. And I think it, it's still relevant here in the States. Where you don't lie though is in search engines. There's no place to lie when you're like looking up stuff. And that's the whole concept of this book is like there's some really interesting uh, statistics um, when you evaluate the data from search engines and what people are searching in different countries and male versus female and gender and race and the whole deal. And I think to your point, that's the next step. The next step for us as an industry is to be able to do a much better job using analytics. And you and I talked about this idea, this business idea of like things like risk. So risk in and of itself is not a score that you provide on a piece of paper that stays static. I think it's something based on the individual that's going to flex. Yeah. 
on the individual, the capital market situation, what's going on in their life. And so there's not really a good way to evaluate someone's risk right now because right, it's, it's kind of an archaic method of how we're doing it. Yeah. Long story short, I don't think that in our industry we're doing enough with data and I think if we if we started to make it more of a focus, we'd probably be able to understand a little bit more about what people actually like, dislike, how they want to be uh, engaged with from, you know, an electronic, a virtual, a in-person, et cetera. Yeah. And until we do that, I, I think we're going to miss something. Yep. No, there's no doubt about it. And so we use as many tools as we can to track data in every aspect from, you know, the analysis of uh, portfolio securities all the way through how we give advice. I mean, we actually track uh, the advice that we give the specific clients. We keep records of that. We also keep records of the outcomes of the advice that we give. And then whatever, whether those outcomes are positive or, or not so positive, we track that. And then that helps to refine the types of advice that we give clients. Again, part of this is behavioral, right? right. Certain clients you have to handle in a certain way, right? You have to talk to them in a certain way. You have to approach the asset allocation and, and the recommendations in a certain way. Um, but it's also, um, it also gets to whether or not the actual advice that we're giving is appropriate and accurate, right? And so we have to fine tune that on a daily basis. And the only way you can do that, you can kind of anecdotally do it and, you know, kind of put your finger up in the air and wait for the wind, you know, wait for the wind to blow what direction and say, well, I think we're going to go this route now. Or you can actually track the data. And you say, well, no, the last time we did this or the last three times we did this, it worked really well. And here's why it worked really well. But here's a way that we can tweak it to make it work even better. Right. You only know that right. by tracking the data. So that's one way to think of it. It goes into some of the things like you're talking about around risk, too. Right. Client risk, making sure that we've got definitions. This is a big one for me. We've got definitions um, defined um, so that. Um, the clients and, and us are talking about the same thing. I, I, I'll never forget it. I had a client situation uh, many years ago. I sat with them. It was a prospective client. Sat with them, asked them their profile, you know, asked them all the obvious questions to tell us about yourself. And as well, I'm incredibly, incredibly conservative. And I said, okay, great. And that set the tone for the conversation. And at the end of the conversation, I said, okay, you know, I'll share my portfolio with the other advisor and you, I'd like you to give me your, your advice and we can talk about this. And so he shared the portfolio with me. And uh, I mean, he, all he talked about throughout the entire conversation was how conservative and how he didn't want to take any risk. There were four stocks in the portfolio. <laughs> it was Amazon, Google, and two other software tech companies. And it was a very large portfolio. And I went back to him and I said, scratching my head, I said, what are you, I, I think I missed something. <laughs> Didn't you tell me you were conservative? And he said, yeah, I am conservative. And that's a conservative portfolio. And I said, well, not really. How do you get to this portfolio being conservative? And he said, because I have so much confidence in those four companies. Right. I don't worry about it. And it really dawned upon me that when we all talk about certain things within this industry, are you conservative or aggressive, what your goals are? that oftentimes we don't even take the appropriate level of time and, and, and maybe diligence to understand what they mean when they're saying certain things and also defining what we mean when we're saying things. So I think there's often um, disconnects that we don't even know as advisors. Um, and again, th it goes back to data. It goes back to asking deeper questions, digging deeper, and really making sure that you understand exactly what you're dealing with on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Yeah, you make a really good point. And it, it's weird. Like I, I've, I think it comes back to the, th the, the concept of experience. Like as you get more experience, you have, I, I would assume it's probably not a direct correlation, but probably a fair correlation as you have more experience, become a little bit more confident and, and having confidence in our industry, it becomes less about it should become less about you professing how intelligent and how great you are and how you're going to solve this individual's every need and more about, to your point, understanding what exactly you're trying to solve for and being sure that you have a good understanding of what that other individual, your perspective or your current client wants. And 
we this this industry is like full i think of a lot of people whose main objective is to ensure that everyone understands how intelligent and great they are Mm -hmm. i have like look it's all there's a ton of really smart people and that's that's totally fine me not being one of them i'm very interested in what exactly are we trying to solve for here Mm-hmm. And what would a good outcome look like for you, Mr. or Mrs. Client? And how can we work together to get you there? And let's just be sure that we're both, to your point, speaking the same language. Yeah. The other concept, too, around being able to go back to people and remind them as to the consequences of certain decisions either you've collaboratively made or made, or they've driven uh, you to make as an advisor. I always call the, the concept of like a defensible position, whether it's, you know, talking to an investor or whether it's just trying to negotiate a, a deal, you need to be able to establish a defensible position. And what you just talked about, being able to track everything and come back to an individual and say, in the last time that we did tax loss harvesting, here's the outcome of that exercise. Here's how it was beneficial to you versus we're going to do something without being able to provide any type of context. So those two concepts, being able to give context to a situation and then making sure that you really understand what it is that you're talking about with your clients, not just the, the subject matter, but that you're speaking the same language, I think is incredibly important in making sure that you maintain good relationships. Yep. So, you know, there's an aspect of, of what you just brought up as well, which I think I should touch on, which is how we think about um, when we communicate with clients, what are we really trying to do, right? And how do we communicate what we're trying to yeah, do with the client? It's a great topic. And, you know, what we're really doing is, well, we can only define that by asking the right questions and spending enough time with client early on. And there's a a mantra that Jeff brought to the firm, which has been very powerful for us. Uh, and we now call it the Intellectus Wealth Trilogy. And, and the idea behind this um, is that there's three key questions. Uh, why, who, and what that we need to answer. And why is finding out from the client what is their why, right? And I think we all know uh, generally what that means. And oftentimes, um, you know, you'll see a website for a advisory firm and they talk about why they're in the business and why they do these things. And that's great. Right. And it does give clients and prospective clients, I think, some some view of who the firm is. But what we're really interested in is what the client's why is and why do they work so hard? Why do they spend, you know, 18 hour days doing what they do? What's the purpose of it? Right. Like wh- wh- what are they trying to get to? who are they doing it for, right? And what do they want the end result to be with it all? And when you start to frame it that way, I think you really start to get into some really interesting discussions with the clients. That's awesome, yeah. And so it goes into literally, you know, the why is about uh, the creation of the wealth. Uh, The who is much more about the preservation of the wealth, meaning the stewardship of it. Who's gonna be, providing oversight and control. Um, How are you going to perform the risk management of the wealth that you've created? And then the what is all about the application of the wealth, which again, isn't often thought of in our industry very often. But uh, this idea of how to apply your wealth is really important. Yeah. You have it. What do you want to do with it? Right. What's the, you know, what's the impact investing that you're doing now that you want to do in the future? Is it philanthropy? Is it more business ventures? How do you want to impact the world? And so when we can focus our clients around those three questions in the wealth trilogy, we end up coming away with some really interesting insights that uh, help us very much in kind of designing the appropriate strategy for the clients. Those questions are they're they're incredible and they're they're super thought provoking and, and the answers that you gave, and I know that you mean they're those are very um, PC is not the right word that I'm, those are those are answers that are non controversial. Mm-hmm. My little experience, I think there's in addition to all those things which are which are fine answers. There's this element whereby the the entrepreneur or the the yeah, the the founder of the company, their their persona 
their their the entire way in which they relate to the world becomes very int has the potential to become very intricate intricately intertwined with their company mm-hmm. and that to me is something that's got to be challenging for you with working with some of these individuals because for a lot of them they, they say this is my you know name the name the number child this is my third child right i care so much about this business this is so much a part of me that it's hard to pull myself away and to ever think that one i could be doing something different as the founder of the company but then secondarily like maybe it's time to sell so how do you when when you encounter those types of individuals what's what's the process that you take them through so that perhaps they're able to to maybe see that a little bit better well there, there's three at a high level there's there's three questions that have to be answered for that right number one it comes back to their why, right? right? So why are they doing this, right? And when you ask that question over and over again, and they have to answer that over and over again, sometimes you get realizations that maybe the why has changed, maybe the situation has changed, maybe they're not as passionate about the business anymore, they're just doing it because that's just what they do. And so, you know, getting them to sit back and have a an honest discussion with themselves about that uh, creates some realizations that maybe either reaffirming, right, that they're doing what they really believe they should be doing, or maybe it's time to move on from there. Um, the other two, a little bit more strategic with with the business. And again, these are the areas where Tim in particular become incredibly valuable in, the, in his team, which is, um, okay, let's evaluate the business, right? Um, you know, are, are you hitting, is the business itself hitting its KPIs? I mean, are you, are you, is it growing as you expected it to grow? Is it is it doing all of the things you expected it to do? Or are you kind of fooling yourself, right? And trying to convince yourself that it's still a really good business when if you actually, again, data, if you look at the data and you analyze it objectively, you go, you know what? Maybe it isn't quite as exciting as, as we thought, or maybe it's not as big of a uh, addressable market, or maybe we don't have the right people, or maybe we're not executing well, but um, that's an important aspect. And then and the other thing is, uh, uh, strategically speaking, What's the competitive environment? And what's the macro environment for the business itself? So uh, going through an evaluation, uh, starting with those three points, really helps you get to a, a fine point of defining where you need, where the the entrepreneur, or the founder, or the CEO needs to needs to go. And you know that applies to small private startups, and it applies to public companies, and applies right. to you know nonprofit organization. It, it applies to every activity that you know a change maker or somebody that's, you know, doing something to have an impact um, is doing, right? So it's a, it's a healthy thing to do periodically. And we literally will do that with clients periodically. Yeah. It's, there's this book, it's called uh, Startup a Silicon Valley Adventure by a guy named Jerry Kaplan. And there's a segment called The Deal. And someone had given it to me and I read it. And it was, it was probably one of the coolest ways in which a the founding through the sale of a company and i know that you wrote a segment for uh i think it was a book that was published by nasdaq is that right uh the nyse nyse yeah yeah. so the entrepreneur's roadmap if that was the title could be you know just juxtaposed over the deal but anyhow the philosophy was talking about how a startup company is much like a game right you you start off with an idea and then obviously you need to be able to uh, attract investors. And in order to attract them, you have your currency, which is your equity, and then you're going to have cash. And you know the, the objective is to be able to grow your business before you run out of resources. It's simple. It's like a page and a half. There's more to it than that, but that's the, that's the whole philosophy behind it. And then similarly, there's this concept um, around, do you want to be rich or do you want to be king? Yeah. And that's the founder's dilemma. Uh, you know, do you want to follow this quote unquote Silicon Valley adventure that is a very, I mean, in, in the book and in, in the concept, it, it's, it maps it out. It's like, this is where you should be at year seven in your company life cycle. Mm-hmm. And that to me is that the philosophy about wanting to be rich. If your objective or your why to your point is, to make as much money as quickly as possible, then there's a very set, there's a very defined set of steps that one potentially should take according to this book in order to do that. And then the whole other concept of wanting to be king is that 
what I was talking about earlier. You define yourself by your position within the company Mm -hmm. and your ability to kind of lord over that, to make decisions that, you know, to make decisions that rightly or wrongly so will always be yours and yours alone. And so when you look at some of the entrepreneurs and the companies that that are part of your client base, do you see those those types of things, the serial entrepreneur and the very stringent timeline to get to an IPO or a sale? And then do you also see the the philosophy of being rich or being a king? Do those things pop up at all? Yeah, they, they do. But I'll tell you, um, in my experience, the ones that have become the most successful were the ones that weren't focused on getting rich. Yeah. It may be ironic, but I, I think that and I have some personal opinions about that, um, which, you know, I think that if that's your focus, um, there's a higher likelihood that it could take you down some uh, paths that you probably don't want to go. Right. right? And, and I think that if that's the focus, it increases the risk of getting there as opposed to, you know, a focus, which frankly is mocked very much in Silicon Valley for, and sometimes for good reason, this idea of, you know, saving or improving the world, right? You right. Know, if you look at the TV show Silicon Valley, it's, it's kind of the, the meme throughout it. But the truth is, um, it became a meme because it was, it was true, right? Now, yeah. maybe it's, you know, when you get 10 years into a technology bull market, uh, it gets a little bit played out. And so there's a lot of people that talk that game that aren't really, that don't really believe that game. So it, it certainly diminishes the message quite a bit. But the truth is, in my opinion, those that have become the most successful, that really is what they're trying to do. They're trying to either improve the world around them trying or trying to just do something that's never been done before. Um, but they, they're, they're, you know, as the old uh, Apple ad said, right, you know, here's to the crazies, here's to the change makers, right? Yeah. Those are the ones that have an impact on the world. And, there, and there's there's truth to that. And I think that's most of where the success comes from, in my opinion. Cool. Here's my last question, Dave. Uh, what should every entrepreneur be thinking about and why? <laughs> well, I can as it relates to our business, um, the one thing that they, I wish that entrepreneurs understood better is usually when they call us, it's too late. Ah. Meaning, you know, far too often we'll get a call from an entrepreneur and said, Hey, I want you guys services. Now Um, I have a term sheet to sell my business or we're IPOing, you know, next month, or, you know, we expect a deal to happen in, you know, 30 days. Right. And my answer to them is great. Congratulations. You know, happy to have a conversation with you, but man, I wish you would have called us six months ago or the moment you thought something was going to happen because we could have had a far, far bigger impact on what your outcomes are going to be. Right. They're yeah. if they're at that point in the process, they've got bigger fish to fry. They're they're focused on the transaction, they're focused on the deal. These types of things, um, as you know, take uh, a lot of effort to think through. Um, and oftentimes uh the entrepreneur thinks that you go to a wealth manager to manage a portfolio. Right. Right. So they think about it in terms of, well, I'm gonna I don't understand. I'm gonna be liquid in 30 days, I'm gonna give you the money. And again, the response is okay, that's fine, we can talk about that. But again, you want us to do our thing and have a really big impact. The earlier we can have this conversation, the bigger the impact. So maybe we end up working with a client. Maybe we choose not to, but we'll probably have a far bigger impact on them on their second transaction. Yeah. Because at that point, they're going to really understand that this is a uh, much more integrated process and we've got to be involved far earlier. Um, So from a wealth management perspective, that is definitely kind of the advice I'd give to you know, uh, those running businesses and entrepreneurs. Um, the other thing is, um, <laughs> you just got to keep your nose to the grindstone. You know, yeah. we've all done it running, running RAs, running businesses. Uh, you're going to go through really, really hard periods and you just got to keep pushing on your vision. And as long as you keep pushing on your vision and you've got the right resources and you've got the right partners and the right team, uh, you're likely going to be successful. Cool. I'll leave you with this. Jesse Eitzler, uh, who is the founder of, I think, NetJets, something like that. He's married to Sarah Blakely, who uh, founded Spanx, and they they do a lot of different podcasts and things. Um, And so he had a quote, which was, 
to experience true adventure in life, you must embark on a journey where the most likely outcome is failure. And I think that applies a lot to people that are entrepreneurs and that are starting businesses that, you know, statistically speaking, that that quote's true, but just as a general sense, in times of challenge, as long as you're doing, uh, quote unquote, the right thing, you got to just keep grinding because you'll get through it and uh, you'll figure it out. It's not always going to be easy. I can remember, you know, we've we've been partners for five years. So I can remember early on, there's a lot of stress for both of us together. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, not everything was the way that we may have sold it, but I'm glad that, uh, that we continue to be partners. And I really appreciate you uh, taking time uh, to, to be on the podcast today. Awesome. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to you, Cheryl, and the whole Dynasty team for everything that you guys have done for us. It's been, it has been a great partnership. Really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening to the Power Independence Podcast. And a special thanks to Dave LaPlaca, our guest. As a reminder, please tune in to future episodes.